Hi, everyone. Welcome to the York College of Pennsylvania Sport Management Alumni Podcast Series. I am your host, Dr. Mike Mudrick. Today, we are joined by Josh Herman, sports sales and ticketing extraordinaire in York College Class of 2009. After graduating from York, Josh spent time in both the Philadelphia 76ers and University of Cal Berkeley sales departments before moving on to his own ticketing venture, which he'll discuss with us today. With that said, let's get started with today's discussion. Josh, can you provide us a a bit of a synopsis on your background, where you're from, what made you want to come to York College? Tell us your story, if you don't mind. So I grew up in Allentown, Pennsylvania, in the Lehigh Valley, and I graduated high school in 2005. Um, when I was young, my, my dad moved to Baltimore County. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, just geographically, you guys probably realize York is just about halfway, a little more than halfway uh, between my parents. And, you know, traveling back and forth growing up, I definitely always drove through that area. I uh, wasn't too familiar with the area, but um, I'd be lying if I said it didn't help me play a role in, in choosing York College. I looked at several other large universities. You know, I was determined to major in sport management. I think a lot of factors played in. I, I saw York as a very good value from a cost perspective. Top of that, like I mentioned, just being able to be close to the family and kind of being able to drive home to either parent on any given time if I wanted to. And then I was just blown away by the experience when we met actually with Dr. Newman in 2005 before I graduated high school on my on my visit and just really the whole all-encompassing feel of as a student you're not just a number but kind of smaller more intimate class settings and, and really being able to become really a mentee to the professors if you will um, and then on top of that the work experience I, I just thought it was a great combination of factors to allow me to succeed so that's why I chose York and, and how I chose York and arrived in the fall of 2005 and uh, graduated. My background just to kind of continue to touch on that. Graduated in the spring of 2009, uh, did my work experience with the Harrisburg Senators in ticketing. But you know, as a lot of you may know, minor league baseball really is all hands on deck. I was in the ticket office, but at the same time in the off season, I was the mascot for some events. You know, I ran and pulled tarp when there was a rain delay. So it was definitely an all hands on deck experience. Do you recall like what specific area in sports you wanted to work? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I really didn't know exactly uh, what I wanted to do. I just am always, I, I thought I was pretty business minded. Um, I thought I was very, you know, extroverted and, and a people person, if you will. And I think really everything aligned properly because I took, as every sport management major did, and no harm on these concentrations but I personally was not interested in facilities I you know wasn't as interested in PR and I really enjoyed those classes and I learned a lot but it helped me identify and kind of search for the no if you will like knowing that that's not what I want to do so my whole main thing was for for me what I thought to create the most opportunity for growth and for benefits slash pay if you will and also an atmosphere that I would enjoy would be to work for a professional sports team and from everything I learned, especially towards the end of my time in college, that in order to do so, the foot in the door was ticket sales. And so that's why I took the internship with the Senators and ticket sales. And as I mentioned, you know, we were all hands on deck, so we had to do a lot more. And that's how I quickly, once again, learned there were things I didn't want to do. But ticket sales, I took to it. I, I really enjoyed it. I have no problem picking up the phone and calling people, whether it's a cold call or a warm lead. I like talking to people. I viewed myself as, I guess, 
a salesman for lack of a better way to put it. That's really kind of how the stars aligned there. And I took my first job uh, with the Philadelphia 76ers as part of their inside sales program. Mm -hmm. And everything kind of took off from there. What were your steps post-college? Obviously, you started with the 76ers. You were there for two or three seasons, if I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah. It was quite a grind, uh, which I knew going into it. You know, it wasn't much pay. It was hard work. I was there for about five months until I was promoted to account executive. So I stayed uh, for two full basketball seasons, if you will, and definitely learned a lot while I was there and, and really developed some relationships with current mentors, if you will. So I was there for two seasons, and I was actually there when the NBA had their lockout. It was a little eye-opening for me. It made me think that, I'll be honest, it, it made me think maybe I don't want to be working in sports just because of you know the in-between and, and how the lockout affected someone like me, and it controlled my ability to work, you know, the fans. On the phone, they weren't so receptive, of course. Nobody wants to be called by a ticket sales guy during a lockout. Yeah. So it was it was very interesting, to say the least. And it, you know, and it affected my income, which as a young professional that was trying to climb the chain, it, it was kind of, you know, it rubbed me the wrong way a bit. Um, I actually followed one of my clients who had recruited me and worked with him in wealth management at that point when I left the Sixers for, it wasn't long, uh, probably about 10 months. And I think that was, if I could word this properly, the best, worst experience because it helped me once again identify the no. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is like, I knew that this is not, you know, the no meaning NO, like this is not what I want to be doing. I was not passionate about it. Um, so my boss from the 76ers took a job, you know, he was my, my recruiting boss, if you will. He hired me as an inside sales rep, took a job with the University of California, Berkeley, uh, to work ticket sales for the stadium renovations for the football team. And he took me with him to sell premium out there. And that was an opportunity I wanted to visit, revisit because it felt a little different being in college athletics. If there wasn't, I know things are different now, but at the time the student athletes were not getting paid. Um, so it really had a whole different aspect to it. It was intriguing to me because I was an employee of UC Berkeley. It was in-house. It was not a contract with IMG Learfield or anything like that. Mm -hmm. So to me, I envision it as a great opportunity because if we succeed, you know, maybe I can line, align a better position up the chain at a different college maybe that brings this sales tactic, this sales force in-house. So it was a great experience and I loved living out there. I'll never forget the day when I flew out for my interview in July, I parked at the Philly airport. It was 98 degrees, 100% humidity. I stepped out of my car and I was sweating and I landed at SFO that night, drove across to the East Bay, and uh, I had to buy a sweatshirt. It was, it was cold. Yeah. <laughs> so I, it was, yeah, very different and, and in many ways too beyond weather. But I, I really enjoyed it. You know, we'll touch on this a little bit too, but it was a great experience also to get outside of my normal bubble mm -hmm. and, and move, if you will. Yeah. It was awesome to learn and just get another side of the fence with being on ticket sales before college athletics, where a lot of it was the buyers were interested in supporting the school and supporting the student athletes rather than seeing a professional event and, and supporting pro athletes that was definitely fun and i think one of the things we'll touch on is, is networking but along the way i had a client that was a ticket broker for a very large and, and very quickly growing um company based out of just outside of washington dc in alexandria virginia and he after two years not even two full seasons at cal recruited me to come work for him um, and, and help him grow his company 
you know, along the way, I worked with him at Fixers. He was a client of mine. At Cal, he was a client of mine. Even in wealth management, he, he was a client of mine, or I should say, we were working on that. So we kept a strong relationship. He hired me, and, and the rest is history. I, I worked for him in D.C. on the secondary ticketing side of things. Uh, I never worked harder in my life. The pay was there. It felt a little more rewarding, too. It really... I guess I should say it motivated me to work even harder. And I made some good connections. And after a year working for him, I decided to, I, I was, to be honest, I was pretty burned out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was great. It was fun. I was working a lot. I was getting paid well, but there was really never any free time. So I decided to put in my two weeks notice and, and told the, him and his ownership group, I'm here for you to work as long as you need me to to wrap things up but I, I need to leave mm-hmm. um, so I worked another six weeks with those guys and essentially became a client of theirs uh, meaning became uh, my own ticket broker and, and a, my own ticket secondary ticket sales rep and you know they had they were a consignment company uh, which basically they would help sell other ticket brokers tickets for them on consignment uh, with a lot of fee arbitrage involved mm-hmm. and a, a, just a lot more exposure to different marketplaces like more than just stuff up for instance okay uh, you know, these days there's StubHub and Vivid Seats and, and SeatGeek yep. and Ticketmaster Resale. And, and we could dive into all this as well. But that's what really helped grow their company and why I became a client of theirs. Because I used their platform once I became my own seller to then, you know, operate my company out of. Okay. Um, and, and that's where the, the rest is history. I haven't looked back. This was in the summer of 2015. Yep. So I've been self-employed since then. What were you able to extract from your YCP experience that allowed you to succeed, especially early on when the industry was still fairly new to you? I think a couple things. Some of it I already vaguely touched on. One of it was to really just be able to work hard and identify what you don't want to do. There's nothing wrong with that. Yep. You know, there was, like I said, there were some classes that I wanted to be able to get the best grade in the class, but I knew I didn't care about the work at hand. It wasn't my passion. And I quickly used that in the professional field as well. Um, Another thing certainly was networking. The program really preaches networking, and uh, that was something that was important to me from the get-go because some perfect examples, when, when there was a lockout, I guess I was indirectly networking with my clients from the Sixers. I ended up taking a job with one of them. Kept my network strong, and my first boss took the job with him at UC Berkeley then. And then same thing, I was networking with this ticket broker client and, and, and worked with him, and that kind of enabled me to take the path I've gone down. I'd say that was important, and then this is pretty, kind of stating the obvious, but just outwork everybody you can. You know, it, everybody interprets things differently, but some of the classes at the sport management major at your college were, were pretty challenging depending on you know what your goals were and my goals were to walk away with a 4-0 every semester and that didn't happen but I worked really hard for it and I my goal was on top of that to outwork everybody else and you know when you get into a ticket sales job that's kind of what you have to do try to be the first one there try to outlast everybody at the end of the day keep your head on a swivel even and work from home a little bit mm-hmm. Um, So those were were certainly some things I took away. Obviously, we talk a ton about networking and the program and, you know, it's a common phrase in the industry. Are there any strategies that you use that really helped enhance your network to make yourself stand out? I'm not trying to toot the horn too much of our program here, but I think it's pretty obvious that... Our students are exposed to a lot of professionals, whether it be uh, as guest speakers in classes, whether it be the professional days that we have. 
but you need to stand out if you want to turn those networks, you know, into a positive. You want to turn those relationships into a positive for you. You know, I recently read uh, an article where someone recommended merely creating an Excel sheet and entering, uh, you know, that person's information after meeting them, following up with those people, and then that continues to build. What are your thoughts for what students can do to, to try to stand out more? Because it's one thing to say, hey, that person, I met them once. But how do you get them to remember you? I mean, everything you said already is a perfect example of some stuff you can do. I, I don't think it's ever like a lot of people think it may be corny or lame or like a brown nosing type of feel. But like after you meet somebody that you want in your network, I always would send an email, mm-hmm. even if it's as simple as thanks for your time. It was great to meet you. Just because for one, I love an email on a paper trail. And then that way, you even if you lose their business card somehow or something like that, you have the documentation of their contact. Um, so to me, that's always really important. I would say to kind of leave a lasting impression, like don't be afraid to build some personal rapport and be confident too, right? Like I'll never forget, and, and this kind of relates to networking because what I'm trying to say is, you, you know, if it's someone you look up to or someone that's way above you in the professional ranks, they're a human being too. They have feelings, they have emotions. You know, they, they were once in your shoes. On my Harrisburg Senators interview when I was in college, one of the first questions he asked me was, what's your favorite movie? And I'm sitting there thinking to myself, is, is there a wrong answer here? Uh, because like, why is this relevant? And he just wanted to keep the ice, like break the ice and just keep me comfortable. Yep. And I guess my point is when networking, don't be afraid to just keep things relatable and make them realize you're both humans. On top of that, as far as like techniques or advice, or I would say like with the confidence thing, like go to high end events and, and don't, like you might be a student or you might be a young professional, don't act like that. Mm-hmm. Assume the role that you're, you know, a multimillionaire and or, you know, in the position you want to be in. So for instance, I go to the Super Bowl every year, not necessarily to the game, but to the city because there's a ton of networking opportunity there. And I try to meet people, yep. whether it's just sitting next to somebody at a bar or walking through a hotel or even the flight there. So definitely... I think the more high-end events you go to, the more networking opportunities you'll see. And uh, one thing, I know this isn't realistic necessarily, and there's a time and a place, but one thing I read recently, you know, actually a couple of years back, and I found it to be true, is sometimes it seems outrageous to pay for a first-class ticket on your, on your flight, but it's worth the cost just to sit next to the person you're sitting next to and network with them. Sometimes you'll find out they're just an employee for a company that got treated to a first class ticket, but sometimes, and it doesn't mean they can't be strong in your network or connect you with somebody else in their company that can be a strong individual for you to network with. But at the same time, sometimes you're sitting next to someone that could be your next boss or your next business partner or somebody that would be a real estate investor with you. I don't know, I'm making things up, but that's another tactic or example of you know, a little bit off the wall networking that can be done. Yeah. Because like, like I said, it's expensive, but at the same time, you never know where that relationship you build will take you. Yeah. So. You don't have to name names, but has that been successful for you? A first class uh, meeting? Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately it has. And that's where it's really no names to name, but I sat next to a developer that, you know, I live in Denver and I bought a house almost two years ago. And this gentleman owns a development, real estate development company. And I did, this was my first home purchase. So I can do all the Googling I want, but really to kind of pick his brain and learn more like I did uh, was certainly worth the process I went through, some of the decisions I made. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, w- I would say so. Okay. Well, speaking of Denver, being out there, 
If you had to summarize your current job duties, what would they be? Well, you know, I have a kind of uh, unique role given my industry and being self-employed, but my job is to buy and sell tickets and treat them like stocks almost and, and try to buy them low and sell them high. So, of course, we want to sell tickets and make as much revenue as we can from them. But in order to do so, you have to purchase them, right? Yep. Really, the current job duties are to every morning there's there's on sales, if you will, or, or pre-sales for concerts or sporting events. So traditionally, you know, current job duties would be to work the mornings for purchasing. And then throughout the day, it's all data related, right? Like that's how we can make informed decisions, kind of essentially calculated gambling, like calculated risk. Mm-hmm. And, and make our decisions based on the data. So really throughout the day, I'm just looking at data and, and, and studying supply and demand for current events or, or future events or, you know, maybe a, a baseball game in a couple weeks um, that it, it looks like the tickets are being bought and, the, and the, you know, so the demand is there and the supply is diminishing. And, and then a lot of times at night, you know, if, if I have the time, I like to look at the the data and make some purchasing for post sale stuff. So stuff that's already been on sale um, at night, because then you can, you know, you get a full day's worth of data that that way as well, that you can base your decisions off of. Um, it's really kind of hard to truly explain just because no, no day is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And I love my job. So if it was up to me, I'd be working 16 hours a day. Um, but for the most part, that's in summary, you know, I, I'm purchasing in the mornings, studying data and pricing my tickets and letting the sales roll in throughout the day. Um, And then really studying more data and maybe doing some more purchasing at night in the evening. For instance, I mean, anything that you've, you've seen recently, like as we're recording this, it's the beginning of August and we're just past the, you know, baseball trading deadline and anything you use from current events related to that, to guide decisions on sound investments. So the blue Jays are going to Seattle to play the Mariners in interleague play. Excuse me, that's not even an early play, but they're playing the Mariners, which they do every year in about, I think it's two weekends. Okay. And, uh, you know, something I've learned over the years is that's a huge series because all of Canada, you know, I don't want to stereotype, a lot of Canada is our, our Blue Jays fans, even if they're not in Ontario, mm-hmm. uh, nearby Toronto. Traditionally, they flood Seattle and go to that game. And okay. if it's the series, if the series is on a weekend when both teams are competitive, which think which you can see what I'm getting at is this year the Mariners are surprising and they're in that wild card race and, and so are the Blue Jays and the and it's on a weekend and it's pretty late into the baseball season so I expect that to be an example of where for the next week or so I'm going to continue to track very very closely multiple times a day on documenting the supply number on both the primary and the secondary side and uh, really just making a point to pounce in uh, about a week from now if, if things look good and scooping up as many tickets as I can because usually they'll sell you know anywhere from five, they're selling now but the secondary market on that kind of thing will heat up anywhere from five days out up until the day of you know I, I think the trade deadline helps that I think Toronto made some moves that their fans are, are probably excited about and mm-hmm. I think my point is it'll help the teams perform I, I guess that would be an example of something right now that I'm, I'm watching closely right now it's August 2nd, and the NBA schedule expects to be released in the next, I would guess, 7 to 20 days, okay. um, you know, for this upcoming season. It's crazy to think because this current, this past one just ended, mm-hmm. but the NBA schedule is like a holiday for guys in my industry, especially if they own inventory, because then you can list all your tickets for sale, and the, the day the schedule comes out, fans will scramble to go buy tickets, and not all the supply is exposed yet, 
but there's an initial rush of demand. So prices are really high. Maybe the Dallas Mavericks. I'm just like drilling in on this Dirk Nowitzki. I don't think they've had an official Dirk retirement game mm -hmm. and for that fan base. And I expect them to. And I think it's going to be lights out. And I would love to get my hands on some of those. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's something, for instance, I'll be looking closely at when the schedule comes out. They probably won't announce it formally right away, but I can try to like, eye up the schedule based on experience and eliminate dates that I don't think it'll be, whether it's, you know, an early season weeknight or depending on an opponent potentially, or if it's a primetime game or all sorts of things. So that would be another example of something I'd be looking for. In our classes, we talk about how sport and entertainment are not recession-proof, and your company absolutely relies on these events taking place. How were you able to make it to 2021, given everything that has happened uh, you know, since March of 2020? I guess I'll just continue to be a straight shooter. I think the way I was able to make it was because I have built up enough of a a nest egg if you will to live off of i mean I was, I was out of business for or out of active income in my business for about 10 months you know i was doing a lot of reverse reconciliation because events were getting canceled and i needed to make sure i tracked all my investments got my money back where i where the events were canceled but at the same time there was still a lot of events getting postponed and everybody knew things were to come back it was just a matter of when so there's still a ton of data to be tracked and an opportunity to buy if you have the time and the money that you were able to allocate and, you know, basically let it marinate, sit mm -hmm. there as an investment. So I did some of that as well. But I'll be honest, yeah, it's certainly not recession-proof. It wasn't easy. I had a date in the back of my head as the pandemic went on where I said to myself, if things make it to this point, I'm going to pivot and get a different job because I would have had to from, from just from an income perspective. And uh, luckily, we never made it that far. And I was stubborn and stayed in my industry. Um, and I think it paid off. Things have been really good over the last several months now, or, you know, almost a half a year, even over a half a year, basically since the Super Bowl, I'd said. But it was tough. I, I'll be honest, like as far as how I was able to make it, it a lot of things that don't relate to my job. That's how, you know, from government stimulus like a payment protection program i hate to admit that um to you know running out my house on airbnb to finding work and other small avenues contract work mm -hmm. keep me getting paid but it's certainly not recession proof i mean it shut down live events with fans in attendance what are some of the most noticeable trends that the sport industry is experiencing right now is it anything post pandemic that most people are not familiar with or are there some other trends that are unique that you've noticed I think, um, you know, both pre and post pandemic, if you, if, I guess from the actual sport perspective and, and like the team perspective, I, I'm not sure that the, you know, for one, the tr I guess pandemic related, a lot of it would be inventory and trying to, like the teams to, and, and their infrastructure with ticketing, they've had to find a new schematic to see people within capacity limitations and, you know, negative testing and, and vaccine requirements and any state's going to be different of course that's certainly been a trend as far as how the pandemic has affected it and you know that we've we've kind of dealt with that and now i i believe are past that and i believe all of baseball currently all of this upcoming nfl nhl and nba will be normal capacity and normal seating but aside from that i think kind of more importantly in my opinion you know, both pre and post pandemic, a lot of trends that I'm seeing is that these these teams and, and you know, I'm going to relate it to ticketing just because that's my, my niche. But like 
these teams are intelligent, want to make as much money as they can. So I'm sure stuff that you guys discuss, you know, they're really on top of their dynamic and their variable pricing, you know, whether it be getting rid of early season weeknight at a less desirable versus a less desirable opponent at a cheaper price, or whether it be raising the prices, of course, on, on for big games, or if the Dallas Mavericks do decide to have a dirt retirement night you you can guarantee that the tickets from the team are going to cost more than they traditionally would have for you know whatever night that would be so and just kind of like overall trends i would say that i've noticed uh and it it pains me because i'm a fan of all sports but i'd say that i've noticed baseball is kind of from an attendance standpoint is really dying down i think your traditional season ticket holder in baseball is, is really starting to dissipate. The, the fans are realizing they can take a game by game or, or a mini plan approach. I think the NBA, proof is in the pudding, like I'm looking at the numbers for years now. I think the NBA is trending in a very strong upward trajectory. They've done a great job marketing their superstars to star-driven league. So even if, bad example, because he's gone now, but formerly the Houston Rockets on a Wednesday night, that'll sell well in any given market a couple of years ago because people want to see James Harden. And, you know, it's, it's, that's just really random to me, but it, it's true. So the NBA definitely is trending up. And something I've noticed is people always think of the big four sports. I personally, from a business standpoint, I have a goal to invest money into the MLS. Okay. Um, I, I think... You know, in, in a decade from now, we might be really speaking out of it as, as a big five. I, I think the MLS trending in the right direction. I, I mean, that also, I'm, not, I'm kind of stating the obvious, but I'd have to look at their attendance numbers a little closely. But I, I think, you know, my generation had a really strong grassroots of soccer. And I, and I think that's helping, mm-hmm. you know, as we get older and become young professionals. I, I think the attendance is kind of going up hand in hand with that. And of course, the Euro Cup and the Gold Cup and the, the World Cup coming up, I, I think that's really building as well. You know, you can tell the MLS is adding expansion teams every year, it seems like. Um, so I think that they're trending as well. Uh, so those are just, I guess, a couple trends I've, I've learned and, and kind of realized recently. Going back to your days in ticket sales for sport organizations, you know, with your sales experience, one thing that we preach plenty you know, whether it be in a, in a marketing class or, you know, our sales and ticketing classes, that you can't just rely on winning to fill seats. I mean, there's plenty of teams that are successful that still can't sell, and there are plenty of teams that are not successful and sell. It's more about the experience. Can you speak to that idea from your experiences? Because especially from a marketing and sales perspective, the experience is something that you can control as opposed to the actual on-field, on-court, on-ice product. Correct. Yeah, I can't harp on that enough. I mean, I worked for a Sixers team that had the number two overall pick in the draft and great guy, but unfortunately took Evan Turner. And my point is the product wasn't great before or immediately after. I worked for a Cal Bears football team that won, I believe, three games the one year, and then Jared Goff was an incoming freshman, and I was leaving and exiting at that point, but won one football game the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've definitely worked for teams where the product is not going to sell itself. So to your point, yeah, you, you just need to find the right fit. I mean, the reason they're having the customers having the conversation with you is because there is some sort of sincere interest. So whether that's because, you know, they do want to, regardless of the product, they, they want to spend that quality time with their children or, or their significant other, or whether it's because, you know, they want to spend that quality time with 
their client or prospective client, or even just, you know, they want to get a group of their co- cohorts and coworkers, employees together and just treat them to a fun night or day out at a game or an event. I, I think that that will always remain. So you just, I, I think to your point, you need to be cognizant of that. And some advice I would give that kind of goes hand in hand with that is like for me working on the primary sales side two things made me successful one try to outwork everybody work hard and and don't ever give up on working hard and i know there's only so much you can do and of course you can you know you could beat that dead horse and say that so many times but it's true but i think on top of that you won't hear this from everybody especially in a sales role because it kind of gets a a bad rap people think of like a used car salesman or something but um, i think something that's very important is be honest like if you're talking to a family, like I'll never, I'll never forget some of my clients that I had with the Sixers because I built great relationships with them. Mm-hmm. And you know, one example is a dad and his son, and they were not like there was no reason for me to try to sell them season tickets for the full season. They they were never going to be able to make every game. But you know, really talking through what's important to them, whether it's like weekends or weeknights or seeing the big stars on the on the big teams and or like sitting in certain seats or whatever, like we were able to find what worked for them. And he bought a 10 game plan and the next season upgraded to a 20 game plan and is now a full season ticket holder. As his kids are old enough, you know, they bring friends, he uses them for his company a little bit here and there. So I, you know, I think that to your point, like the the product is certainly not gonna sell itself all the time, but there is a fit for everybody. So just be honest in what you're trying to sell them. Don't oversell them, listen to what's important to them. Like I said, there's there's a reason why they're talking to you, even if the product's not good, they're still interested for a reason. So just kind of figure that out and run with it. To close out today's discussion, I'd like to ask some more thoughts uh, from your perspective on professional development related questions. I know, you know, we already talked about some of this early on in the podcast. What's something that you you look for in prospective employees that you think current students should keep in mind? Anything different from what you've already said? Is there something that students should be doing on a fairly regular basis, in your opinion? I would say it's important to continue to network, but beyond that, from like a professional development standpoint, you know, don't try to be somebody you're not, but at the same time, make sure you're presenting yourself the right way. You know, be punctual with time if you have a a call scheduled at a, a given time, you know, be everybody makes mistakes but if you're conversing via emails or and it's somebody that's a prospective employer or somebody you don't have a true tight-knit personal relationship with yet make sure you're proofreading your emails mm-hmm. make sure your punctuation's proper just little stuff like that you never know like to me that's not the biggest deal right i work in a very informal industry currently but i think at the same time i'm going to judge somebody if i get a sloppy email from them yep. so i think naturally others will do the same on top of that i would just take that mentality of you know, look good, feel good, play good. Like you're gonna work hard, play hard kind of thing. Like I I would definitely just always keep your head on a swivel and know that like, you never know who's listening. You never know who's gonna be important to what you're saying. Like you might be conversing with a fellow student of your classmate of yours. And for all you know, they have a close relationship with somebody where you're gonna apply for a job later or it's their parent or family member that owns a company or what have you. So. I would say that as well. And I don't mean don't go out and have fun. Like I had a lot of fun while I was in college too, but just be cognizant of who's watching and, you know, pictures that get posted and all that kind of stuff. I clean up your social media maybe until you get, you know, your professional 
background developed and then you have maybe less concern mm -hmm. if that's the route you want to choose but you'd be naive that I, I guess i should really touch on that you'd be naive to think that when you're applying for a job or you know an internship or even just a call with somebody that could be a potential mentor you'd, you'd be naive to think that they're not going to like look you up on facebook or instagram or something like that so don't stress over everything that's been done in the past but Try to keep that clean if you will but uh yeah I, you know there's a lot of things that can be touched on from a professional development side but to me like i work in a very digital cloud-based industry so a lot of emails going back and forth i would say keep those clean but also appearance you don't necessarily i'm not going to sit here and preach make sure you're clean shaven and all that right i have a beard <laughs> but keep it clean looking and you know, don't wear a shirt that's all wrinkled or whatever if you're going in person. You know what I mean? Like, make your appearance good as well. Yep. Um, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Another question I like to ask folks in the industry, um, what's a question that you like to ask in an interview that might, I don't want to say throw people off, I guess similar to the question that was asked to you about what's your favorite movie. Is there is there a question that, that you've come across over the years that seems to, to stump people or, or unfortunately weeds people out? Yeah, that's a great question because that's like you never want to get caught up in an interview and not have the proper answer or like seem like you haven't thought it through. Yeah. I think one of the things that you should think about is you, you, you're going to go into the interview and you should with confidence and, and know in the back of your head, I'm going to kill it. I'm going to get this job. But um, at the same time, you have to realize that you're not and, and nobody's perfect, right? Yeah. So I've been asked before, your parents, you know, if we called your parents or your closest loved one or whomever right now and said what are josh's biggest weaknesses um you know i think that's something you need to be ready to be honest about and keep it relatable and, and don't be afraid to admit um so I, I would say something like that or you know using be ready to use past experiences a lot of times they'll ask you you know tell me a time in the past tell me about a time in the past when you know you took a leadership role when you weren't the assigned leader or you worked well together as a team or you know, you overcome, you overcame a fear or got outside of your comfort zone while on the job. Like, so I, I think that's another one that I've been asked and that I ask that I think are important as well. Okay. And then obviously always having like a specific example, because I'm certain, you know, many aspiring young professionals will say, oh, you know, I'm a hard worker. I, you know, I, I served in this role for, you know, such and such organization. Well, what did you do? Tell us, you know, give me a story of how you demonstrated you were a hard worker, correct? Exactly. Yeah, ex exactly. Because anybody could sit there and, you know, run their mouth and, and say things, but you need to be able to back it up. Well, that's all the questions we have uh, for today's uh, conversation, today's podcast. So, Josh, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much for, for joining us today for our, our inaugural Your College Sport Management Alumni podcast. This was a great conversation. I think it's really insightful for our students to, you know, learn from folks who have, you know, have experience in the industry and, you know, have, have really worked hard to get to where they're at and, you know, are, are also, you know, it's, it's great to learn about, you know, some of the successes and failures that we've had along the way. So uh, really appreciate, you know, the thoughts that you shared with us. I think it's really valuable. Um, for our, you know, aspiring young sport management professionals that are that are in our program right now. Yeah, sure. It's it's of course my pleasure. I'm I'm yeah. happy to help in any way I can. And you know, I hope you would uh, 
I don't know exactly how this will form, you know, format, but I, I would love for you to post my contact information. And if anybody listening is interested in anything ticketing related or just sees a common connection on LinkedIn, like don't hesitate to reach out to me. Always happy to help. And I'm, I'm a very people helping people kind of person. So even if it's as simple as an email introduction to somebody or, you know, you want to pick my brain on primary or secondary ticket sales, I'm happy to help you. Yeah, absolutely. And I can attest for that, students. Josh has, you know, has, has been very willing and um, very helpful for our students in, in years past. So, yeah, we will definitely include um, your email address and, and all that contact um, as we, we post this on our, on our LinkedIn site. All right, as we wrap things up, I want to thank Josh Herman again for being our first guest on the Your College Sport Management Alumni Podcast Series. For our students, I hope Josh's story was valuable and his remarks on trends in the ticketing and sales component of our industry certainly had merit. With that, I hope we all came away from this discussion with several key takeaways for the future. Thanks again for listening and be sure to check out our alumni LinkedIn page for anyone who's interested in Josh's contact information.